If you would, take your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The things that we have been singing about this morning, what you saw with baptism, what you saw with the Lord's Supper, you might say, why? What's the background? What's the foundation for, for all those things? We're going to be able to see that this morning in, in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to see how what we've seen about, what we've participated in, how that's coming right out of what we find from, from Paul there in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to get into that in, in just a moment. A couple of heads up of things that, that are coming down. Anytime a staff member says, hey Owen, would you wear this t-shirt on Sunday morning? I'm always quick to say yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter which one it is. But uh, we, you'll see several of these t-shirts around this morning letting you know about Falls Creek, which is coming up in, in a few weeks. They're about the second full week of June. So if you know of a teenager, maybe your life was profoundly impacted at Falls Creek back in the day, and you know of someone, you're like, I would love for them to be able to go and be a part of Falls Creek. We'd love to be able to take them uh, here at Emmaus. And so you can talk to Jaron about that. You can catch any of us afterward. Use that little card in the seat back in front of you. Uh, information that you can just say, hey, I want to know more about Falls Creek for, for a teenager that I know of. We'd be glad to, to help you point you in that direction. Also, parents, don't forget, Vacation Bible School registration is open. Looks like... Uh, School schedule is still going to allow for Vacation Bible School to happen as planned that first full week of June, and so we're, we're gearing up for that. One other quick thing to point you toward, we have so many things coming down uh, the road here at Emmaus that are a lot of fun, but one thing to point you toward is May the 6th, the, the first Sunday of May. It's a Sunday that we celebrate our graduating seniors, so it's always a really special service. But immediately after that morning service, we're also going to have something called Discover Emmaus Lunch. If you've been visiting Emmaus for a while and you're curious about more that's going on here, or maybe you've been attending for a while or you're a member and you would like to bring someone with you, that lunch is a good starting point. It's free, it's no obligation, but it's a chance for them to meet staff. Here's what's happening uh, at the church. And so if you're a part of Emmaus, who could you bring with you? Who could you bring on that Sunday to hear more about what's going on? Even that person's not a follower of Christ to say, hey, come with me. I want you to hear about what's happening at my church. And that's a great Sunday for them to be able to, to see that and, and participate in that. So that, that's coming, plus a lot of other fun things that we'll, we'll tell you about. So a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I the, the week leading up to Easter, I received an email, uh, an invitation to debate the national president for the American Atheist uh, Group. Uh, in the days leading up to Easter, what we would call Holy Week, but in those days leading up to Easter, the American Atheist had their national convention in downtown Oklahoma City. Now, if you're here this morning and you are an atheist, you're agnostic, or you have a lot of friends that are in that camp, hang tight. I'm not here to, to blast anybody or speak badly, so, so hang tight. Let me finish my story where this is going. Um, my self-importance was deflated quickly when I found out that several of these emails went out. I was like, oh, they picked me of all the pastors in Oklahoma. No, they sent tons of these emails out. They, they were waiting to see what topic they would get back that they really wanted uh, to debate. And so it ended up not being me or my topic or my proposal that I wanted. It was something else that 
I didn't think it was the greatest debate topic ever, but they went with, went with that option. Um, but as I was preparing for this, leading up to that time, I was reminded, number one, most of us probably don't belong in an academic debate setting like that. Over Mother's Day lunch, it's probably not helpful to debate with your family member about the cosmological argument for the existence of God. That's not really the way to go about this. There are other conversations to have that are probably more helpful to show them how your faith impacts your life, to talk to them about the meaning of the resurrection or why you think the Bible is dependable. And so there's ways that all of us need to learn about having these conversations. But as I was preparing for this debate that I thought I was going to be a part of, I started to read on Twitter from several atheist leaders and would, would read different perspectives. One, one in particular is a man named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins um, is pretty brash in his approach to atheism. Just like not every atheist would want Richard Dawkins speaking for them in the same way that not every Christian would want every Christian person on TV uh, speaking for them about the things of Christ. It's, it's kind of that same idea. Dawkins takes an approach that's pretty brash, that has a lot of ridicule, tries to mock and make fun of. But I ran into a quote, I actually put it on the back of your bulletin as one of the first elements in the sermon notes, but as he was talking about and mocking the idea of the resurrection, one of his tweets that week, he wrote, which you will be in heaven? Senile you with dementia? Midlife crisis you? Now that tweet is a part of a bigger context where he's just throwing out these things that make the resurrection, that make a future life sound silly. But this didn't start in 2018, and this didn't start with Richard Dawkins. People for a long time have said, how silly to believe in a future body. This life is all we have. This is it. Maybe there's a future soul. Maybe there's something else. But that's ridiculous that you believe in the resurrection of dead. Dead people don't come back to life. Dead people die, and that's the end of it. Maybe their memory lives on with you. This is not a new idea. You say, why, why is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. Paul is writing about the idea of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, Paul was involved in pastoring, so he was familiar with the phrase, pastor, people are saying, or someone says, or you wouldn't believe what people are saying. There's these very general ideas that are out there. Paul understood how this worked, but one of Paul's styles of writing was he would pose a question that he had heard somewhere along the way and then that would allow him to be able to provide a response to show the gospel. So this is probably not a made-up question. This is probably a form of a question that Paul has run into over the time because remember that the audience he's writing to, especially this Gentile audience, they believe in a soul existing for eternity or, or, or living on beyond the body, but no belief in bodily resurrection. And even Paul's Jewish audience believed that if the body came back to life, it was the same body. Now that's almost more depressing than just a soul living on after life. Because you're saying, if I believe in the resurrection and I get this a second time over, 
I'm not sure that that's particularly good news. Um, maybe just let my soul keep going if this is the only body and I get it a second time and have to try again with it. And so even in the Jewish idea of the resurrection, it was pretty much what you have this time is what you're going to get the second time around. And so he was hearing these questions. It's a two-part question there. In verse 35, it's, how are the dead raised? So in what manner will this happen? And just to take away the intrigue, He's going to say it's going to happen the way that a seed is planted and then a tree or a plant comes as a result of that. He's going to say it's similar to that. So that's the manner. Second part of the question, with what kind of body do they come? And he's going to say it's very similar to the resurrected body of Christ. It's going to be raised in glory. It's going to be imperishable. It's not going to decay. That type of thing. Go to verse 36, though. Verse 36, Paul's response to those questions would be, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Okay, back to that Mother's Day lunch that you're having with your family member that's not a follower of Jesus. If they say your idea of the resurrection is silly, probably not in that situation your best response is to say, You fool! That's awkward for mom at the table when you do that and you're arguing with your family member that doesn't believe in Jesus. Probably that's not the way to go. What, what's Paul doing here? Most likely, number one, he knows that these questions were given in a mocking, ridiculing type of way. If they had been honest questions, you don't get the feeling that he would have responded in this particular way. So he's responding in a way, and the word foolish there is a word for unthinking. Paul is saying you are disregarding out of hand the idea of the resurrection. You haven't thought it through. And this is an important point when we're talking about conversations with people, and especially if you're not a follower of Jesus and this idea of the resurrection sounds really silly. There's a difference between not believing in something and completely disregarding something without actually thinking it through. Paul's frustration is on one side, they've just completely disregarded. They have not given it any thought. Whereas Paul says, hang with me here. I'm not asking you to make a leap into the dark. There's, there's reasons behind this. There's purpose behind this. Uh, when we talk about our faith and we talk about arguments or, or debates we might have with people, sometimes we, we portray faith as just a leap into the dark. It's, it's not quite like that because there are reasons for why we believe. There's a background. There's, Paul says, it's foolish just to disregard it out of hand. At least hear me out. At least hear what I have to say. The other reason that he uses the word fool here is this idea of a fool was very common in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs especially. And so Paul is going to begin to use images that show up a lot in wisdom literature because he's tying it into this background. But not only that, but wisdom literature in the Old Testament influenced Jesus' parables. And Paul's going to use language that Jesus used a lot to describe the resurrection from the dead. John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul's using a description, an image that was very similar to what Jesus used. And so he's, he's building that foundation. Go ahead in verse 37 to see how he, he works this out. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. 
But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So Paul's going to begin using this plant agriculture imagery, which unfortunately is kind of a, a sensitive topic for us in Oklahoma because I know several of you may be mourning the loss of your vegetation because of, of the recent freezes. We, we planted our flowers a little bit early this year, so four times now we have covered those silly things trying to make them uh, survive, and I think we've saved about two-thirds of them so far, but you're out there covering them thinking I'm protecting my investment here, and uh, especially those of you that have fruit trees, and you're like, oh, this crazy freeze, and it's going to mess up my whole, my whole summer. But uh, this idea of, of plant imagery, agriculture imagery, is going to be something that Paul uses because it makes sense to people. They can see the relationship here. A seed goes into the ground. When that seed goes into the ground, you don't think, well, that's the end of that. It goes in the ground with the hope that something else is coming up. Paul says in the same way, if you see a body go into the ground, don't immediately think, well, that's the end of that. Think, I wonder what happens after that. He's using an imagery that would have made sense to the people to say, don't disregard the resurrection as a silly idea because you plant a seed and you expect a plant to come as a result of that. Here's something very important about that idea. When we talk about the resurrection of the dead, when we talk about the raising of a dead body, there are two things you need to hold together. Continuity and discontinuity. Same, different. The body, when it is raised in the final days, will still have identity. There will still, in some ways, be something about that body that is similar to the life that we have now. If you plant a seed in the ground, maybe a corn seed, and you got a fruit tree out of that, you would say, well, that's ridiculous. That's not, that's not how it works. I planted one seed. I expected something similar to that. In the same way, the body that dies in some way will be similar to the body that is raised. But in some way, it's going to be different. If you plant a seed in the ground... And then out comes a package of seeds. You would say, well, that was no good. I, I didn't get anything out of that. I planted a seed hoping I got something different. The body that goes into the ground is not the body that is going to be raised. And so Paul wants you to hold together this idea. In some way, your identity is going to be preserved. In some way, it's going to be the same. Just like I plant one type of seed, I expect that type of tree. In another way, it's going to be different. If I plant a seed, I don't want more seeds to come up. I want to see something different come as a result of that. Those of you who have kids and they've done the little plant the seed in the cup and they put it on the windowsill and they watch it and they wait for it to grow and as a parent you feel undue pressure in those moments for that plant to grow and then if it doesn't grow you've got to go get a plant from outside and stick it in there so it looks like a plant grew even though the plant didn't really grow because you can't stand the heartbreak of your kid's plant not growing. When they plant a seed in the ground, they expect something to come as a result of that. Paul says, when you see the body go in the ground, expect that something is going to come that is similar to what was planted, but is different, not the same as what is planted. Go on to verse 39. Paul says, for not all flesh is the same. There's one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for 
for fish. Okay, Paul does two really cool things here in this verse. Number one is he ties back in to the Genesis account, and he's going to begin working backward through the days. So he goes to day six, and he picks up the idea of the creation of humankind. Then he backs up to verse or to day five, and he begins to talk about animals. So he starts with something that's closest to us, and then he go, he's going to move to illustrations that are different from us. But what he's doing in this verse is a very common form of argumentation, and it's called the principle of differentiation. Don't worry about that. Just know that things are different. Paul says, here's what, here's what he's doing here. The people of this time were mocking, making fun of the idea, you're going to put my body in the ground and something different is going to come of that. That's the silliest idea I've ever heard of. Paul says, whoa, time out. Look around at the world God created. Is every animal, is every type of flesh, is every body that you see the same? No, of course not. There are elephants and giraffes and people, and, and we're not all the same. God is capable. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying God is capable of making different kinds of bodies. And if God is capable of creating in that way, he's also capable of causing a different type of body to come after the resurrection. So hang tight. If you're scared that this is all I got, this is probably not all you got. God is capable of doing something different. So you go to verse 40. In verse 40, Paul says there are heavenly bodies. Now he's moved to day four in creation. Day six, people. Day five, animals. Day four, the heavenly bodies. So he's purposely going in reverse here. 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Now he's setting up more argument to come. He's going to say that second body you get, it's better than the first one. Um, there's a different glory of the heavenly and a different glory of the earthly. Verse 41, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of, for the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That word perishable and imperishable is a key word in 1 Corinthians 15. The word means corrupted or prone to decay. What is put into the ground, this body, is going to decay. It is going to perish. It is corrupted. It's not perfect. It's not designed to live forever. What is raised, though, is imperishable. It will not be prone to decay. It will not be corrupted in the way that this particular body is. Just like that seed that goes into the ground is going to go away, but in, in, in its place is going to come a plant. Go on to the next verse, verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. This is good news. Um, and, and here's one of the reasons this is good news. Because for the Corinthians, they were obsessed with honor and strength. They had special schools for their young men when they would reach teenage years where they would go and they would learn how to be honorable men and they would learn how to be strong. And because in that culture, everything was geared toward your honor and your strength. And Paul says, I hate to tell you, but your honor is going to run out one day. One day you're going to be forgotten. 
one day you're not going to be anything. Your strength that seems so great right now, strong as you might be, it's going to run out one day. I was reading a story uh, yesterday about Andre the Giant. Take somebody like Andre the Giant, um, Princess Bride, everybody with us, Andre the Giant, Went down to Hulk Hogan, unfortunately, in a, in a tough match. But uh, Andre the Giant, this incredible image of strength, didn't make it very far in life. And toward the end of his life, you see his body deteriorating. You see the decay that comes because of everything that was related to his strength. If Andre the Giant's strength is going to run out, I can promise our strength is going to run out. Paul says, dishonor. Weakness is going into the grave. Out of the grave is going to come glory and strength and power. Next verse after that, 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay, this requires just a quick explanation so we don't have confusion about what's going on. The word natural there is connected to a word that we would think of for the word soul or, or our, our common human being. Sometimes people read natural body and spiritual body and they think this body is made of real material and the future body is not going to have real material. It's going to be spiritual. I'm going to float around. Unfortunate modern reading put back into this. This is not what that means. Natural body simply means the body made for this particular habitat. The, the soul that was designed to live in this particular world. Spiritual body, Paul is going to explain here in a little bit, is a real body, but it's a body not designed to be lived in this particular world. It's a body for the world to come. So don't read natural as, as material and spiritual as floating around somewhere. It means this world and the world to come. Um, you think about that old like Biosphere 2 project that the people did out in Arizona, I remember this from when I was a kid, and I heard about it on TED Radio Hour this week again. But they built this huge bubble. They tried to create this habitat where people would go and live in there and make their own food. And they would live in this bubble for a couple of years. And, and the lady talked about how they realized pretty quickly that their project was good, but it wasn't going to work long term. They were not prepared to live in this other habitat. In a similar way, God says, I've created a body that's designed for this world, and there'll be a different body for the world to come. Now, to catch us up with where we are, and as a shout out to my wife who loves a good chart, uh, look at this next slide really quick here. Here's the, here's the way that this is developed. Paul says there's a body that's sown. This is the body that we have that's going to go into the grave. It's perishable. It's going to decay. It's ultimately one of dishonor. It's weak, and it's natural. It's a soul made for this world. The body that is raised is imperishable, it's full of glory, it's going to have power, and it's spiritual. It's designed for another world that, that is to come. That takes us up to verse 45. Verse 45, Paul says, thus it is written. He's going to tie back to the Old Testament again. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being or a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam that you read about in the book of Genesis all that Adam could do was pass on the image that God had given him from one generation to the next. He was a living soul, and he could cause other living souls 
to come into being through, uh, through the process God had given him, but he couldn't give life to a dead body. The second Adam who would come, the last Adam who is Christ, he was a life-giving spirit. He was able in that Ezekiel 37, kids, that old story about the bones that were in the dry valley, and then God sends his breath into those bones and they rise up and they become a great army. That's the background for what's going on here. Genesis 2, Adam, all he could do was just continue to cause the human race to go forward. The last Adam is the God who is able to give life. He is able to raise the dead in that Ezekiel 37 style. Verse 46 It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. This is in reference to the order that our bodies have. Paul says, don't panic that you have a natural body now. The other bodies to come, the spiritual ones to come. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So one verse is about the order, this body first, then the other one. The second is about the origin. Where does that body come from? The first came from the earth. The second will come from heaven. that's That's where it originates. 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just if we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I'm afraid I've skipped past it, but I want you to see Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, just for a second here. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Our citizenship, our core identity in Christ is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3 is saying the exact same thing as 1 Corinthians 15. That this body is prone to decay. But our primary identity in Christ means that from heaven will come another body. To transform this body, so there'll still be identity, we'll still have the same identity, but it will be new. It will come from a different source. It will come from heaven. Takes us to another chart. I want to make sure we're all caught up here. Plus, like I said, my wife just loves charts, if you've ever taken a Bible study with her. First Adam on the left, living being, a natural soul made for this world. First Adam comes first from the earth. This Adam is dusty. Sorry if your name is dusty and you're here today, but uh, um, having to do with the dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that that type of idea. And, And we bear his image. The last Adam, Christ, though, is a life-giving spirit. Spiritual, comes second, comes from heaven. Heavenly origin, and we will bear his image. Now, here's a phrase you've heard me use before, but it becomes very important at this point. There's a phrase in the New Testament, or not found in your New Testament, but it helps you understand your New Testament. It's the phrase, already, not yet. Already, not yet. As Christians, we live in this tension of we still have this body that's prone to decay. It's prone to dishonor. It's prone to weakness. It's going to wear out. But at the same time, we already have the hope that we bear the image of Christ. So during this time, 
We live with our identity in Christ still in this body. One day, that identity will be made perfect when this body is transformed and we have the spiritual heavenly body to live in the new creation that God has planned for his people. So we're going to talk in just a second about how that pertains to the way we live our lives. But remember, we're still in this body prone to decay, but it's not ultimately all that's going to be there. In Christ, we have future hope. Verse 50. Now Paul has to address the question, what if I'm still alive when Jesus comes back? Or what if I haven't died? What, what, is, what about that? I tell you this, brothers, in verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, you have to be changed. And you think, I've heard that somewhere before. You have. It's John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to be changed. You have to be transformed to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's the same idea that Paul is using right here. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning not all people will die before the coming of Christ, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, so their body will have been changed, uh, not prone to decay, and we shall all be changed. We shall all experience that transformation. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now we'll pick up that verse next week, there in verse 54, and work to the end of the chapter. But that verse there in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory, that comes from the book of Isaiah. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, the God of death was portrayed as a consumer. Really, the God of death was portrayed as a stomach. Uh, and you can see in the ancient world where this idea would have come from, that a body is laid in, a ground, in, in the ground, and it feels like that body is being consumed. And so people feared the God of death because it was like the body was being consumed by this angry being. Well, you can see where that language is turned around here. Death is now swallowed up in victory. All along, people have been scared of the God of death that would swallow them up, and Paul says, oh, fear no more. The God who swallows others has been swallowed. Because of what Christ has done on the cross and through the resurrection, that God of death that so many people fear has been consumed, has been eaten up, has been taken away, and so you do not have to be afraid. You're corrupted now, but one day you'll be changed. Your body's wasting away now, but it's not a waste. There is hope for the future, which is good news for us because we live in broken bodies with broken hearts in a broken world, realizing that is not God's design for creation. But because of the effects of sin, that brokenness happens, and people deal with that brokenness in so many ways, but Paul is saying, you can't handle that on your own. The hope is found in Christ. And when you experience the life that Christ has for you, he will restore you to God's perfect creation, to God's perfect design for your life. So it works in this circle that goes from God's design. When we move away from God's design, it leads to brokenness. 
But in brokenness, we repent and we turn to Christ and he leads us back to God's design for our lives to bring everything to perfect completion. Here's how I'd like to wrap up. I want to point you to a slide here with a couple of final, final thoughts. How do you not waste the resurrection? Well, first is to experience Christ's victory. If you are trying to deal with the reality of death, if you have come face to face with your face to face with your own mortality, if you're living in a world where you just feel overwhelmed by the brokenness around you, maybe even the events of the last few weeks have brought you to this place of just feeling hopeless. All of these verses, everything we have done this morning is designed to say there is hope. It's not a hope that's seen with the eyes. It's a hope that lies beyond that. But there's hope. And we're not telling you to run jumping into the dark like that's faith. We're saying your faith is built on who Jesus is and what he's done for you in the cross and the resurrection. That's the foundation of it. Experience Christ's victory for your life. We'd love to be able to talk with you about that. If you're embarrassed to come and talk to somebody after the service, there's that card I keep referring to in the seat back. You can use that to reach out to us and say, I, I need to talk to somebody. I feel hopeless. I don't know where to turn. I need to talk to somebody about this. We want to be able to do that. The second thing is that you would live with humble hope. On your notes, on the back of your bulletin, if you've got a copy of the bulletin coming in, I've laid out these next points at the bottom. And for each one, I've listed a passage of Scripture. Romans 8. 2 Corinthians, actually Luke 12, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I was sending out daily devotions uh, for a while before Easter, and then time caught up with me, and I haven't continued to do that. Um, here's what I would encourage you to do, though, this week. If you do not have a habit of reading Scripture, or maybe you're out of the habit and you just don't know where to start with the Bible— can I encourage you this week? And kids, this pertains to you as well. Romans 8, Luke 12, 2 Corinthians 4. I've laid the verses right out there for you. If you miss a day, you've got plenty to catch up. Families, we don't meet together tonight here at, at Emmaus. We don't have any evening activities here tonight. This might feel really awkward for your family, but let me encourage you to, to try this. Gather around the table just for a few minutes tonight, and as a family... Read those passages of Scripture. All you have to do, mom, dad, open the Bible, open up your phone, Romans 8, Luke 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just take turns reading those passages of Scripture around the table. Those are the foundations that take you from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning to how God wants us to live in response to this. He wants us to live with humble hope. Not being the obnoxious, brash, religious person that just says, oh, don't worry, this life's going to pass on by, everything will be okay. No, we, we deal with pain. We deal with darkness. We deal with difficult situations. So we deal with it humbly, but we have hope that what we face is not the end of the story. People are looking for that. Those next two points, don't give in to sin. When you live in a world that's broken, when you live in a body that's broken, one of the responses that we can sometimes take to that is we say, you know what, this is going to come to the end. This body's almost finished. And in response, you say, well, I'll just do whatever I want to. God's going to take care of everything in the end. 
it'll be all right, so I'll live however I want to right now. The response to living in a broken world is not to live a more broken life. When we understand the hope of the resurrection, that doesn't drive us to give in to sin, that drives us to fight against sin. One of the signs that you've experienced the power of the resurrection in your life is, I'm not going to give in to sin, I'm going to fight against it. I'm not going to give in to the corruption of the world, I'm going to fight against it. Christians can be on the fronting, or, good night, that was fronting, that's a terrible word, can be on the leading or the front edge, just don't say fronting, it's either front or leading, can be on the leading edge of justice in the world because we know that evil and sin will be overcome. And so we don't just give in to sin and allow it to run rampant in the world. We want to see God's kingdom come, and so we fight against that. We fight back against that, not in our own power, but because we believe in the resurrection. So we don't give in to sin. And the last thing up there, we don't give up on life. You say, this world's wasting away. This body is wasting away. Yes. That's true. That matches up with exactly what we found in 1 Corinthians 15. But the response to that is not to say, and life is a waste, so I give up. I'm just going to endure this until it's finished. When you have hope in the resurrection, it gives you a strength and a stability to be able to go through the middle of that suffering. And so if you are living with a broken heart, or you are living with a broken body, or you are living in a broken situation, know that the result of the resurrection is that you are able to see that situation as not being a waste. And if we could bring it in just a little bit tighter, you think about situations of infertility, wanting so badly to have a child. Or you think about situations of terminal illness. I'm in this body and it's wasting away, or my mind is deteriorating, or a situation of a broken job, or maybe a situation that you've always wanted to be married and it hasn't happened, and you're in those situations, and you say, everything inside me just says to give up. It's wasting away, what's the purpose? And the resurrection says, in the moments of darkness and pain, God does his greatest work. In the moments of brokenness and suffering, you see God's grace shine the brightest. And so if you are facing a situation right now where you can come face to face with the corruption and decay of this body, you come face to face with the brokenness of this world, don't give up. There's a living hope that says God is at work in a way that goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. That God is going to work in and through you in a way that brings him glory. And I don't mean for a second to make light of what you're facing. This is not some simple just pretend it's not happening idea. This is saying that God has come right into the middle of your pain and he is going to do something that goes beyond anything that you could ever imagine because we have that living hope through Christ. I'm gonna pray for us. After I pray for us, we're gonna sing one of my favorite new songs about that living hope. We're gonna stand and sing with all of our hearts about what God has done for us in Christ. If we could pray for you, if you're suffering from a broken heart or a broken body or just overwhelmed by what's happening in this world, and we can pray for you, we want to be able to do that. Your response during this final song might be that you fill out that card that I keep referencing in the seat back and just say, I need to talk to somebody, I need somebody to pray with me. However God is leading you to respond during the song, we want to be able to do that. When we sing, 
If you could also take those offering plates and pass those at the same time, that would be a huge help as well. Let me pray for us, and we're going to do that together. Father, thank you for a worship service like this morning that includes baptism, includes celebration of the Lord's Supper, includes times that we're able to sing together about the hope that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, a chance to just walk through a passage of Scripture phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence. God, I pray that as we leave this place, that we would read Romans 8, we'd reflect on Luke 12, we'd find hope in 2 Corinthians 4. God, that when we leave this place, it wouldn't be the last time we think about the resurrection this week. God, I pray for those who are on the edge of giving in to sin. Maybe they're tired of fighting. Maybe they say, you know what, this body, it's going to decay. I'll just live however I want. God, let us not give in. And God, I pray that those who are are right on the edge of giving up can't see beyond what they're facing right now. It seems so dark and so hard and so hopeless. But as Braden said in his testimony earlier, hope is not what is seen. Hope comes from what is unseen. Our hope is in you. We have a living hope through Jesus Christ. God, would you heal hearts this morning? Would you give courage this morning? God, would you shape us as a church as we stand and sing together? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.